Hello, everyone. I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for finding my podcast. Here you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but your faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. On Wednesday evening of this past week, we completed our seventh of eight Bible study sessions on the Apostle Paul. It's been, a, it's been an epic study, not because of who is leading it, but because of the subject matter. Saul of Tarsus, St. Paul the Apostle, is unequaled in his influence as a follower of Jesus, shaper of Christian community, and the establishment of Christianity as a distinct monotheistic movement. He wrote a large portion of the New Testament, almost half if we count the books. And on this coming Wednesday evening, we will wrap that study up by looking at the theological influence and legacy of this man, the major, major themes of his work. So you still have time to join us, even if you arrive only for the last session. The last shall be first, and the first shall be last, so there's room for you. But on this past Wednesday, Garrett McHugh asked this question of me during the Q&A at the end. He said, ask, what is your favorite book that Paul wrote, and why is it Galatians? Well, indeed, Galatians in my fiery youth and in the years I was pulling away from hard-boiled fundamentalism was my favorite of Paul's. Galatians has the flavor of Paul grabbing some of his early converts by the shirt collar and demanding to know what is wrong with you. Why are you falling back to obsessive rule-keeping when you have been given so much grace? Don't you know that Christ has come to set us free? The best we can tell, this is the first book Paul wrote. He was younger then too. Ready to rumble for the sake of grace. And I love that book. But Galatians was not the answer I provided Garrett on Wednesday evening. I answered instead, Philippians. Somewhere along the way, over the years, I have moved from reformer to wannabe contemplative. From fighter to seeker. From zealous builder of something new to a more hopeful practitioner of peace. From one who would and could tell you everything that is wrong about the church to one who at least attempts, attempts to accept things that I cannot change. I have transitioned from Galatians to Philippians. Now, I didn't want to just feel that. That was my answer Wednesday night and I felt that that was the right answer, that that was where my emphasis now was. So I checked my work. Foolishly, no doubt, I checked my archives. I drilled down into that searchable database of more than 600 talks that I have given over the last 15 years here and gave it a good analytical dissection. In the first year of A Simple Faith's History, I spoke from the book of Galatians seven times and Philippians zero. But since then, 
Philippians has been my go-to word from the Apostle Paul, today will be, in fact, the 30th time that I turn to the book of Philippians, and best I can tell, only those red-letter words of Jesus in the Gospels and the book of Psalms have gotten more play from me than this book. And why not? You read Philippians, and there are some, some repetitive words and themes that begin to emerge. Paul mentions joy 20 times. He mentions glory about a dozen times. He talks about being in Christ 40 times. He throws around words like contentment and peace and love. It is a be good, feel good, do good treatise unlike anything else Paul wrote. And all along the way, he just wants those to whom he writes to keep it up. Let the fruit of your salvation continue to bloom and to grow. Stay connected to Christ. Find in Him all that you need for satisfaction in this life. For strength. For the elimination of all that rips you apart. Find in Him a simplicity that settles your heart and mind. Simplify. Simplify. Today, and I, what I think is the sixth installment of this current series Simplify your stress. Oh, that would be nice. As offered by Paul in the book of Philippians. We've read Philippians 4, 4-8, through 8, where Paul provides a prescription of sorts for easing your mind. Here are the ingredients. Rejoice in the Lord. That is, find something God has graced you with to be happy about. Count your blessings. Can you do that? I bet you can. Second ingredient, let your gentleness be evident to all. In other words, calm down. You're strung up a little too tight. Easy, easy does it. Three, instead of worrying, try praying. Give it a shot. What have you got to lose? And four, fix your mind on the good things of life. All that is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, and praiseworthy. So here's a little mantra for you today. Be glad. Be gentle. Say grace. Seek the good. And the result will be this God-given peace that transcends all human understanding. Now, there's much to say about this, but at least one thing to say that this is not. This is not a magical, spiritual elixir. It is not a biblical dose of Prozac to get you through a bad day or to cure a diagnosed mental illness. There is an abuse with texts like these, and I think it's genuine pastoral malpractice where we are told directly or indirectly that if we'll just learn this one little spiritual lesson, if we'll just follow this one ABC pattern, then all of your pain and suffering and your anxiety and all your harmful thoughts will vanish into the ether. But the Bible is not a prescription pad. It is not a medicine cabinet, though that is how we sometimes treat it. You've got a medicine cabinet at home, do you not? Or maybe you have, it's just that drawer. You know the drawer? That has every, I was in that, that drawer last night looking for band-aids. It's got band-aids and 
cortisone and ibuprofen in it. And when your head hurts, you go to that drawer. Or you go to the medicine cabinet. When you cut yourself, you go to the med- medicine cabinet. And we dig around and find what we need. And that is good first aid. That's good minor pain relief. But the Bible just doesn't work quite like that. Not in my experience. Like someone who came, <laughs> came to me once and said, Well, Pastor, my wife and I have been having some problems, and I've been reading those verses about her submitting to me, to her, but it's just not working. Oh, you think? Sometimes in pastoral counseling, you just want to say, can I recommend an attorney to you because I don't think you're going to get it. Or, you know, I, I read the Bible and I pray and I ask God to work in my life, but but my son is still a drug addict. What, what, what am I doing wrong? Child, you're not doing anything wrong. The book I've been reading has all these Bible quotes in it. And it says that if I have proper faith, then I wouldn't need this antidepressant. I wouldn't have to go to a doctor ever. That with faith, God would protect me from everything. Stop reading that book. And keep taking those pills, please. Unless your doctor says otherwise. You just can't turn to passages like these in the Bible only when something hurts. Or only in an emergency. Or when we need to be rescued. And treat them like they are an aspirin for an aching head. Or a bandage for a bleeding body. Or a 911 call. The real power of the Scriptures is not in its ability to stop the pain or to protect you from trouble. Rather, its power is shown... Maybe we could say it like this, when it is taken as part of a spiritually healthy lifestyle, when these instructions become a way of life, Paul does not offer a magic eraser for all of our problems and our worries. He offers instead a completely different way to live and to be, which is actually what we need, a way to be sustained, not insulated. Because there is no protection from troubles in this world. There is only being sustained in them or being crushed by them. There's a Japanese story called the two fish. These two fish that are friends, great, shiny, beautiful creatures populate this little stream. And one fish is highly intelligent and the other fish is not. He's rather stupid. And one day... Fisherman, a fisherman shows up on the banks of the stream. And the smart fish says immediately, I might not be able to escape this fisherman if I stay here. So I'm going to leave this place. So he made his way over rocks and through the shallows and under the roots and the limbs of sunken trees until finally he made it to the sea. No single fisherman could reach him there and he he. Yes, given up the place that he had always known. He had suffered greatly on his journey. There would be new challenges in this new home that he had arrived in. But he was there safe and he was eager to undertake this new life that he had. Well, the dumb fish said to his friend who was swimming away, I can't leave this place. This is all that I've ever known. And besides, no fisherman has ever caught me yet. So I will escape this one as well. Well, being dumb, he started jumping and flopping around, splashing and leaping from the water, thinking he was agile and clever and that the fisherman would never catch him. And of course, this only drew the attention of the fisherman. 
And soon the nets closed over him and he was brought to the shore. And as he lay, as he lay in the frying pan, he said to himself, when I get out of this one, I'm definitely swimming for the ocean next time. Yeah. When the net is already around you, and you smell something good cooking, but it's you. It's a little too late to start devotional Bible readings. Because you're already in it. What helps is this journey that we're on that has sustained us over time. We put in the time. It is a fortification over the long haul. Not protection, but support. Not something to be quoted. The Bible is something to be practiced. Because we all know that just because you have biblical knowledge does not necessarily lead to you having a peaceful lifestyle. And just because, and you know these people, that someone can quote the Bible chapter and verse doesn't necessarily mean that they are kind and filled with the Spirit of Jesus, does it? So let's say it again. Be glad. Be gentle. Say grace. Seek the good. Let's try that together. Be glad. Now that's nice on a wall. It works better if you're practicing it. Every day. And that's what Paul says to do. These were the verses I was looking for that I thought I had sent to Gary, but obviously didn't. Paul says, after all of this, put these things into practice. Be glad, be gentle, say grace, seek the good. All right, all right. But keep swimming in this water. Do this constantly. Make this a lifestyle choice. Practice this. Every single day, find something to be glad and thankful for. Did you know a practice of thanksgiving is as effective as meditation or prayer is for you? Proven. Just by finding things you are glad and grateful for. Be gentle. That is, learn to relax. Take intentional moments of quiet. Well, I'm not very good at that. I know you're not. That's why it's called practice. Say grace. Now, that might be the Lord's Prayer. It might be a prayer book. It might be silence. It might be a rosary. It might be taking a thoughtful walk. It might be like the old forgetful rabbi who kept losing his prayer book. And he couldn't remember the prayers. And so one day as he went to prayers, he said, Lord, I've forgotten my prayer book. I don't know where it is. I can't remember the prayers anymore. I'm just going to say the alphabet three times in a row. And you put the words together. I think that works. If it works, it works. Whatever that practice might be for you. And then daily, every day, seek the good. Seek the good. Have you seen the news? Not a lot of good out there. War, inflation, injustice, insanity. There's always some political fight, always some religious scandal, always some ugly headline, always some mass shooting, always some literal or metaphorical train wreck. I know that. But there is always someone out there practicing peace. If you look for them. 
There is always someone working for justice. There is always someone out there with integrity. There is always someone healing and helping. There is always the true and the noble and the right and the pure and the lovely and the admirable and the excellent and the praiseworthy. No, it's not the headline because good news doesn't sell newspapers or garner clicks. It's not what you see when you open your news app or your social media feed, but seek it and you will find it. Do it every day. Practice these things. Malcolm Gladwell coined a phrase in his book Outliers years ago. It is the 10,000 hour rule. Look across all disciplines. Musicians, computer programmers, baseball players, painters, sculptors, chefs, accountants, teachers. When does a person in a particular field actually master a craft? When do they become skilled, even become an expert? And there seems to be a magical number. Ten thousand hours. So if you had a job and you worked 40 hours a week at some task, it's going to take you more than five years to become proficient at that task. If you're not working 40 hours a week at it, it's going to take you much, much longer to become accomplished. I'm not saying that slow people can be made faster or short people can be made taller. And yes, it is a generalization, it's not a science, it's a rule of thumb, not a law of nature. Still, this 10,000 hour rule tends to work out. You have got to put in the time with good guidance or a skilled teacher. It's why apprentice programs work so well. You can become an electrician, a plumber, a carpenter, a tile worker, a welder with a good teacher in 10,000 hours. I really believe there is a transferable application to things spiritual. God is accessible to all. But cultivating that relationship takes a while. Learning to listen, to sense, to follow, that requires time. Being a disciple of Jesus, a follower, is being an apprentice under the tutelage of the master teacher. We practice the way of Christ And it is what Paul is getting at here. Be glad, be gentle, say grace, seek the good. Peace will be the result if we practice these things. Let's put in our hours. Let's put in the time. Learn the discipline of quietness and stillness. Embrace the benefits of being thankful. Cultivate the ability to detach from that constant ruminating that you say is thinking, but it's not. You're just replaying in your mind how someone has hurt you, how you have failed, how you have been mistreated, or all the things that could go wrong, or how things could have been different. That is not thinking, that is not praying, that's just chewing the cud. And it gets you nowhere. Can we learn to let go of all this and stop recycling our our internal garbage and acquire a centered focus on all that is true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy. Now here's a secret. You already know it. Your mind will not stay on the positive things. It will not stay. And it's okay. You can't help yourself. You can't help yourself because the way the human mind has evolved 
is that we are all naturally attuned to the negative. Because that's what kept our ancestors alive on the Serengeti. The sense that there's something bad over there has kept human beings alive. It is a survival mechanism. However, in an excessively connected, fear-mongering, disaster-driven, clickbait world, we perceive now more danger and anxiety than we can possibly process. Hypersensitivity to danger is no longer a survival mechanism. It's actually a step toward our own extinction. And if you don't get quiet, and if you don't pull back from some of that stuff, you will go insane. That's not an exaggeration. We are not built for the world that we have created around us. We have to find a way to be glad, to seek the good, to be thankful, to calm down, because our well-being is at stake. In this spirit, I'll end with the brilliant Irma Bombeck. She's not as well known in this generation, having passed away now more than 30 years ago. But as I told someone just this week, all my favorite authors are dead. <laughs> you know, time reveals the value of a person's work and words. And Miss Bombeck, hardworking kid and housewife from Dayton, Ohio, went on to write three, three. I used to do this for a living, but she, I wrote one. Three newspaper columns a week published in 900 newspapers across the country. I really miss newspapers, by the way. She published 15 books, and, and talk about time revealing good work in words. She wrote this way back in 1979, years and years before her own death, years and years before any of us gathered here today. And it's simply entitled, If I Had My Life to Live Over. Someone asked me the other day, if I had my life to live over, would I change anything? My answer was no. But then I thought about it. And change my mind. If I had my life to live over again, I would have waxed the floor less and listened more. Instead of wishing away those nine months of my pregnancy and complaining about the shadow over my feet, I'd have cherished every minute of it and realized the wonderment growing inside of me that this was my only chance in life to assist God in a miracle. I would never have insisted the car windows be rolled up on a summer day because my hair had just been teased and sprayed. She also said, by the way, you should never have more children than you have car windows for them to look out of. But that's another, <laughs> another column. I would have invited friends over for dinner even if the carpet was stained and the, soda, and the, and the sofa faded. I would have eaten popcorn in the good living room. And worried less about making a mess. I would have taken the time to listen to my grandfather ramble on about his youth. I would have burnt the pink candle that was sculptured like a rose before it melted in storage. I would have sat cross-legged on the lawn with my children and never worried about the grass stains. I would have cried and laughed less watching television 
and more watching real life. I would have shared more of the responsibility carried by others, which I took for granted. I would have eaten less cottage cheese and more ice cream. I would have gone to bed when I was sick instead of pretending the earth would go into a holding pattern if I wasn't there for a day. When my child kissed me impetuously, I would never have said, later, no, no, go get washed up for dinner. There would have been more I love you's, more I am sorry's, more I'm listening's, but mostly, given another shot at life, I would seize every minute of it, look at it, and really see it. I would try it on. I would live it. I would exhaust it so that when I stand before God at the end of my life, my pockets will be empty and I can say, Lord, I used everything you gave me. So in that spirit, let us be glad. Let us be gentle. Let us say grace. And let us seek the goodness.